What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. definitely a very unique time uh, in the sense that we are having to do this and we're having to meet online. And uh, so I just want you to make the most of it. You know, normally you got to get out of your bed. Normally uh, you got to get dressed and you got to get in your car and you got to come drive to church. But now uh, you can just stay in your pajamas if you want to. I'm sure maybe some of you are doing that right now. Maybe some of you aren't even getting out of bed. You just got your laptop open. You're watching us. Uh, that's perfectly fine. You can just be sitting on your favorite recliner, uh, drinking your coffee, eating your breakfast, uh, make the most of just uh, having this time and enjoy it. But, um, you know, I'm sure that if some of you were to look at this last week and the craziness of it, you probably wouldn't conclude, you know, this was one of the greatest weeks of your life. Maybe you've had some bad news if you lost hours at work or your job or, or someone you know has gotten sick or, you know, so you probably wouldn't conclude this was a very good week. But then others of you, you know, I know that Scarlett needn't have a lot of friends in the neighborhood and they're rejoicing because they're off school and they might be off school all the way till through summer and so I know if I was a kid uh, that this would be amazing news to me that I was off school and that I didn't have to go back for months uh, I'm sure that for my parents that would not be amazing news at all and so you might be in one boat or the other where you're happy about this week it's a good week for you or this is not a good week at all but I just want you as we start uh, this morning looking at what we're going to look at I want you to think about the greatest week if you were to look back on your life you know what would you say is the greatest week for you personally in your life. And, you know, maybe that week would be uh, the week that you got married and you went on your honeymoon. Uh, For Jenny and I, uh, we were blessed. We had someone give us a timeshare in Hawaii. uh, And so we got to go for a week to Hawaii for our honeymoon. Uh, That was definitely a great week. Or maybe for others, uh, your greatest week is when your child was born. You know, I remember the first time holding Scarlett and Eden, and it was just something about being there and just seeing your child for the first time, and what a blessing and privilege that is. Or maybe for you, the the greatest week of your life was a mission trip that you went on, and God used you in amazing ways. You saw people get saved, and you look back on that week as just a a week that you look at as, as a great week in your life. And, you know, for others, maybe it was that week that you finally passed your final exams and you graduated for college or, or for others, it was finally getting that dream job where you actually had a career that you love to do and you were excited to go to work. Uh, but the reason that we determine that a certain week in our life is either great or, or not great is usually because of benefits that we receive from that week, like the benefit of marriage, the benefit of children, the benefit benefit of graduating, the benefit of getting to do what you love to do in work, or the benefit of being used by God. And, you know, I'm sure all of us hopefully have at least one week in our life where we can look to and say, man, this was a great week. This was a week in which, you know, I can look back and see many benefits from it. But I bring all that up because, you know what, there's a week that even though many people in the world might not know, it's the greatest week in all of human history. And the reason it's the greatest week in all of human history is because of what Jesus accomplishes in that week for all of humankind. And so, you know, this is the the greatest week that there ever was and ever will be. And John spends the rest of his gospel focused on this week, this wonderful week, the greatest week that there ever was in human history. And the first event that starts this greatest week of all human history is the response that people have to Lazarus being raised from the dead, which is what we looked at last time we were in John's gospel. And the next great event and the greatest week in all of human history is Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
And this week concludes with things that I'm sure you're already aware of, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. But something very special and unique about John's gospel is in between the triumphal entry and the death of Jesus on the cross, John shares with us many special encounters that Jesus has with his disciples, things that he does to prepare them for his death and for his resurrection that none of the other gospels share with us. And so John dedicates six chapters of this gospel to this special time between the triumphal entry and Jesus's death on the cross. And these are details that we'll be looking at over the next several months as we go through John's gospel. But this morning we are going to look at uh, the second main event that takes place in the greatest week in all of human history. And that is the event of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, their other Gospels actually share a little more detail about the triumphal entry than John does, but we're not going to look at those details. We're going to stay focused on the things that John shares with us. And after John shares with us some of these details about the triumphal entry, he's going to share with us four responses from four different groups of people to the triumphal entry, which is going to lead to Jesus sharing with his disciples something that he's going to do, and also a challenge for something that he wants them to do and us to do as well. And that's really going to be the main thing that we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to be leading up to this challenge from Jesus. And I think this challenge is, you know, something that we today, as we're dealing with coronavirus and the craziness of the world, will hopefully be something that is a challenge and encouragement to us in this time as well. And so let's start with what John shares with us about the triumphal entry of Jesus, starting in John chapter 12, verse 12. It says this, The next day a great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, if you remember from the last time we were in John's gospel, at the beginning of chapter 12, we were told there are six days until the feast of Passover. And so that's how we started chapter 12, only six more days leading into the feast. And on that day, we saw that Jesus and the disciples, they go to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. They have this feast. That's when Mary anoints Jesus with uh, her uh, oil and puts, uh, washes it with her hair. That's when uh, Judas rebukes Mary for doing it. Uh, but it's also when many people stop by the house to look in the window because they want to see the miracle man. Jesus, and they want to see the miracle of Lazarus having been raised from the dead. And because of seeing Lazarus actually physically walking around, many people choose to put their trust in Jesus and word spreads to the religious leaders. And so the religious leaders come up with their own plot to kill Jesus because, you know, they don't want Jesus doing any more that's going to cause people to believe in him. But they also then come up with another plot, which is, hey, we need to kill Lazarus as well. Because now people are seeing Lazarus raised from the dead. They're believing in Jesus. And so their plot is twofold. Kill Jesus and kill Lazarus. And hopefully we'll stop the spread of people believing in Jesus. Well, now we come to verse 12 and we're told it's the next day. So now it's the day after this dinner party and all that transpired, which means if we do our math, there's only five days until the Feast of Passover. And since the Feast of Passover is less than a week away, many people have already gathered into Jerusalem getting prepared for this feast, and word of Jesus is spreading. You know, people are hearing not only of all the things that he's done up to this point, but specifically of this great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And the conclusion that many people come to is that Jesus, if he can do this, if he can raise someone from the dead, surely he is the Messiah. Surely he is the one that God has sent to save us um, from what they would believe would be Rome. And we're told that they do something to show what they think Jesus is. We're told they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So notice here that John shares with us something that the people do and something that the people say towards Jesus. The first thing is what they do. We're told that they wave or palm branches, they, they lay those things down uh, before Jesus and so that Jesus can walk over those. And you might be thinking, well, what's the significance of that? You know, what does that say? Why would they go gather palm branches and why would they want to lay them down before Jesus? What would be the point? What would be the message that they're trying to send by doing that? Well, um, palm branches were used in the celebration of the Feast of Booths. And that feast was a, a remembrance of God's salvation and deliverance uh, when they were in Egypt as slaves and God delivered them out of there. And so the palm branches were connected to that and they used that every single day in the Feast of Booths, which lasted a whole week. And it was a, it would bring them back to, Hey God, we remember how you saved us. And so as they use these branches now, and place them before Jesus to walk on, they're ultimately declaring, hey, Jesus, just like we remember at the Feast of Booths, the God who delivered us from uh, Egypt, we're looking to you to deliver and to save us. And we don't really even have to guess whether or not this is what they meant by the palm branches, because all we have to do is look at what they do and connect it with what they say, because what they say makes it really clear what their motive was. We're told they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, this word Hosanna, you know, you might be familiar with it. We sing it in some of the songs that we sing, but the word actually means save now. And so as they are saying Hosanna to Jesus, they're crying out, save us now. And the people are quoting a very famous psalm, a psalm that would have been memorized by the majority of the Jews, kind of like we memorized John 3.16, focusing on the salvation of God for us. This was a, a, a salvation psalm, something that Jews of that time would have had memorized, and they're quoting this, and I'll read what this psalm says. In Psalm 118, 25, and 26, it says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, the thing that is important to understand about this entire psalm is it's what we refer to as a messianic psalm, a psalm that's referring to and speaking of the coming Messiah. And so this psalm was referring to the Messiah who would come and who would save the nation of Israel. And so by quoting this, they're clearly declaring, Jesus, we believe that you are the Messiah and we are asking for you to save us now. They've been waiting for it, and they feel like Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. So what the crowd is doing and what the crowd is saying is quite significant, but John also shares us with us something that Jesus does as well that's important to note. Notice what Jesus does in verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's cult. So we're told that Jesus, he finds this donkey, and, and the other Gospels give us more insight as to whole, that whole process, but the important part is that he sits on it, and he rides into Jerusalem on this donkey. And once again, you have to ask the question, what's the significance of this? Just like, why would they you know, wave palm branches? What's the significance of Jesus riding in on a donkey as opposed to a horse or, or walking without anything? And there's really two significant things about this. First is because it fulfilled prophecy. And that's why John clarifies that. That's why he says it was written, speaking of in the Old Testament, fear not daughters of Zion, behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. John is quoting Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. I'll read to you what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. 
Now, the thing that's important here is Zechariah wrote this 550 years before Jesus actually did this. And what John wants us to know is that Jesus riding on this donkey is a fulfillment of prophecy that God said this is the way the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem. And so this is the first reason why this is significant. But the second reason of why this is significant is because it reveals what Jesus was and also what Jesus was not coming to do as he arrives in Jerusalem in this final week before he sacrifices his life. You see, in Jesus' day, there were many triumphal entries, especially from Rome. You know, Rome loved to demonstrate their power over other nations and say they have these triumphal entries and these huge proceedings and all these things that go with it uh, to show that they were conquerors of other nations. Uh, here's a painting depicting the triumphal entry of Roman Emperor Constantine, who just won a war. And the person who wanted to be declared as a conquering king, they rode a horse of war into the city. And this showed that they were responsible for conquering their enemies. And walking before them would usually be the people that they conquered. Some of the soldiers or some of the people in the land, now that they're slaves of Rome. And it was a demonstration of, you know, here I am on my horse of war. And here they are, the people that I have conquered and taken captive in this war. And so riding a horse of war was a declaration that you were there to rule and you were there to reign over this conquered nation. But Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a horse of war. Notice he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the reason that's significant as well is because also in that day, if you were to ride into a city on a donkey, you were coming as a man of peace as opposed to riding a war horse coming as a man of war. And so Jesus doing this, it was a demonstration of what he was coming to do versus what he was not coming to do. He was coming to be a man of peace. He wasn't coming to ultimately declare war against Rome and to conquer Rome. He was coming to make peace between God and man. Now, John tells us that not only did the crowd say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but notice they also say the king of Israel. You see, the crowd wanted Jesus to be their conquering king. They didn't just want the Messiah, they wanted a king to rule and conquer and save them from the Roman oppression that they were under. And so when they're crying out, Hosanna, save now, we think, oh, save salvation, it has to do with sin. That's not the mindset that they would have had. They're thinking, save us now from Rome. Save us now from the oppression of Rome. Save us now from Rome being over us and us being slaves to them. And that's what they ultimately want salvation from. But the thing that was more deadly and more powerful than Rome, the thing that was needed more conquering than Rome, was sin. And so Jesus came to make peace between God and man because he came to say, you know what? I'm conquering something far more important than Rome. I'm going to deal with something far more powerful than Rome, and that is the sin of mankind. And so Jesus, when he came, he came to come make peace. He didn't come to make war. Now, if you go to Revelation, in the second coming of Christ, he's going to be on a war horse. He is going to come make war with those who are fighting against him. But at this moment, at this time when he came, he came to make peace. And it's something that many missed, that reality. And so what was happening here was very significant. A lot of interesting things transpiring, you know, with the palm branches, with the declaration of Hosanna, save now, with Jesus riding a donkey. And really for different groups of people looking in on what was transpiring, there would have been different responses to this. Some excited and good and some, you know, very much not liking what was happening. And John reveals to us four responses here to the triumphal entry and all the things that are transpiring. And the first response is from Jesus's disciples. And we see that in verse 16. It tells us this. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, something we see throughout the gospels is the disciples 
didn't understand a lot of things. You know, Jesus would even blatantly tell them things like he was going to die, and they just didn't, didn't seem to get it. He told them about his resurrection. They didn't seem to get it. You know, he dips a piece of bread in some wine and says, whoever I hand this to is going to betray me, and he gives it to Judas, and they're still clueless. I mean, they just didn't get things that you would think that they should. But here, as all this is happening, they missed the reality of what this symbolized, of what Jesus was going to do, because they fell into the group that many people did. They were waiting for the conquering king. They wanted Jesus to conquer Rome. They wanted Jesus to establish his earthly kingdom. And it, for them, they had even more motivation for that than maybe others, because others, they look at it as, well, yeah, now we're not under Rome's authority anymore. But these guys are thinking, yeah, and also we'll be the right-hand men for the king, for the ruler, you know, we'll be with Jesus. We're his disciples. And so they were wanting that. They were looking to that. And that really blinded them from the reality of what the triumphal entry was symbolic of and speaking to that Jesus came to make peace, not war. And so they just didn't understand. Uh, they missed it. And it wasn't until after Jesus was glorified, after he rose from the dead, after they looked back and they realized, oh, wow. Yeah, the Bible actually prophesied these things, and we completely missed it when it was happening. And it wasn't until after the fact that understanding finally came to the disciples. And that was something that, you know, we see in many instances with them. It wasn't until after Jesus rose from the dead that they finally start grasping some of the things that Jesus was revealing. And so their first response is from the disciples, and their response is a lack of understanding about what it meant and how significant the triumphal entry truly was. The second response is from the Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. We see their response in verses 17 and 18. Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. So notice this, the people who were with Jesus at Lazarus's tomb, so they were eyewitnesses of that amazing miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, these same people are now at the triumphal entry. And as they're there and Jesus is there, guess what? They're not being quiet. They are witnesses. They're bearing witness, we're told. That means they're going around and they're telling people, hey, we saw Jesus do this miracle. See that guy, Lazarus? We saw Jesus raise him from the dead. And I'm sure news had spread to many people in Jerusalem about this miracle. And some people were probably thinking, wow, that's amazing. And other people might have been thinking, I'm not sure, so sure I could believe that someone was capable of doing that. But you know what? When you got to hear an eyewitness, yeah, I know it sounds like it's too good to be true, but I saw it. I watched this man walk out of the grave, and all of a sudden that news from eyewitnesses was spreading, and more people started to believe in the power of Jesus and he and the fact that he truly was the Messiah. And so we see these eyewitnesses ultimately impacting many of the people in that crowd to believe in who Jesus was was. Now remember, many of them also kind of had a wrong idea of what they wanted from Jesus, but they definitely agreed that this power showed he was the Messiah. So the second response is from these Jews that believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they believe it ultimately because of the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. So but, you know, the first response is one more of ignorance. The second response is a great one. The third response is from the Pharisees, and as you can probably guess, they're not going to be happy. Verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now I want you to think of the events leading up to this. At the end of chapter 11, the Pharisees come together with the religious leaders. They have this council and they come up with a plot. All right, we're done with this. We are now going to kill Jesus. And they're, they're set with that. There's a plot in place to take Jesus out. And they actually even tell people, anybody who knows of his whereabouts, we command you to tell us so that we can ultimately seize him and then kill him. They're doing everything they can to stop Jesus's spread of approval and people believing in him. And they think, well, the only thing we can do is to kill him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and more and more people start believing in Jesus. And so their plot 
to kill Jesus now includes the killing of Lazarus because, wait a second, we have to kill this guy as well because he's living proof of Jesus' power, which shows that he is the Messiah. And so now they're trying to kill Jesus and Lazarus, and they want to stop any more spread of Jesus' popularity. So that's their plan, and they're given this command. If anyone knows where he is before he comes here to Jerusalem, we want to know where he is, we want to seize him, and we want to execute our plan to kill he and Lazarus. And they think, man, we'll do that, we'll squash all of this, and it can be over. Now imagine their surprise when Jesus does show up in Jerusalem riding on a donkey, but the worst thing of all for them is these huge crowds declaring him to be the Messiah, asking for him to save them. And so they're watching this. They're wanting Jesus dead to stop the spread of people believing him, and it has grown in a way that they are just so upset with. And we're told that they're declaring among themselves this message. You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You know, what they're saying to one another is our plot, our plan, everything that we've tried to do to stop this spread, to kill Jesus, to kill Lazarus, it's not working. I mean, the world has gone after him. A little bit of an exaggeration, but in their mind, everyone is starting to follow Jesus. The thing that we're trying to stop is the thing that's actually happening. And then they say this We've accomplished nothing. And for us, as we look at this story, you know, it's always pleasant and, and a pleasure to watch the enemies of Jesus come to this recognition that we truly can accomplish nothing against him. And it should be an encouragement for us as well. But they're at this place where they're desperate in their plot to destroy Jesus and they feel like they've accomplished nothing. And the interesting thing about the story as it continues, they're going to get to a point where they actually think, ooh, now we've accomplished something. We killed him when the reality is, they made it way worse for themselves. And when he rises from the dead, they'll come to another recognition of, no, we accomplished nothing then as well. But this third response is the response from the Pharisees who come to this place where we think, we've accomplished nothing. We are not stopping the spread of people believing in Jesus. Our plot to do this is not working. Well, the fourth response is from an interesting group because it's a non-Jewish group. We have the disciples who are Jewish. We have the crowds who are Jewish. We have the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are Jewish. And now we have a response from Greeks, people who were Gentiles, uh, non-Jewish people. And let's see what we have in verse 20 through 22 with them. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Well, John tells us that there were certain Greeks that came to the Feast of Passover to worship. Now, we're not given any background about these Greeks, so we don't really know um, exactly their motivation for being there. It could be that they were Greek converts to Judaism, this was something that did transpire where the Jews would reach out to those who weren't Jewish and, and seek to help them convert to Judaism. And if they were men, they would be circumcised and they would start worshiping the true God. So it's possible that these guys were Greek converts to Judaism. And that is why they were there during Passover to worship God, because they've accepted who he is. They could just have been God fearers, uh, that they respected Judaism but they hadn't adopted it. Uh, they hadn't become circumcised, you know. And for the Greeks, they had many gods. So they might have just been someone who said, you know what? Hey, we can kind of add this god to our others. And we kind of, we're, we're a god-fearer, but we haven't fully adopted Judaism as the only religion that we hold to. Or they could have just simply been Greek travelers known for their curiosity. You know, when you look in the book of Acts and, and Paul's uh, dealings with the Greeks, they were very curious people uh, and they had many gods, but man, that could have been it. They were, oh, who is this Jesus? You know, so we don't know. It could have been as much as someone who truly believed in the true God to someone who was just interested, but we don't know their motive, but we do know what they did in response to the triumphal entry and all that they saw. We're told that they came to Philip and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, on a side note, why did they choose Philip? Well, actually, Philip's a Greek name, so they might have thought, hey, we can come talk to this guy. He has a name similar to ours. Uh, but, you know, they come to Philip, but notice their reason. We want to see Jesus. 
You know, we want to see, we want to meet this guy that we're hearing all this stuff about. I'm sure they heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. They see people saying, hey, Hosanna, save now. He's the Messiah. I'm like, man, we got to meet this guy. We got to know who he is. Uh, and so I think something interesting to note in all of this, kind of a side note, is that right after Jesus' birth, Gentile men from the east, known as the wise men, they come and they see Jesus. And here, right before Jesus' death, Gentile men from the West, they also come to meet and see Jesus. It's an interesting little side note. But uh, so the fourth response here is from a group of non-Jewish Greeks, and they ask Philip if they can see Jesus. Well, Philip, he goes and he tells Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go and they speak and tell Jesus this news. Well, now we're going to see how Jesus responds. He gets this message that these Greeks are wanting to see him. And he's going to share what I really want us to kind of focus in on this morning, a message about himself and something he's going to do, and also a challenge for his disciples that would include us as well. Verses 23 through 26, it says this, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So when Jesus hears that these Greeks want to see him, want to meet him, he comes and he tells his disciples something very important. He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, if you remember, as we've been going through John's gospel, there have been several instances where people have wanted to kill Jesus or to harm Jesus or to throw stones at Jesus. And Jesus does not allow that to happen. And right after that, we're told because his hour had not yet come. And when we hear that term, his hour had not yet come, it's speaking of the time for his death was not yet. That God had an ordained time for Jesus to sacrifice himself on the cross. And it wasn't earlier on in the gospel, but Jesus is now revealing to his disciples, the hour is now. All these other times when things have come against us and people have tried to kill me, I've told you the hour is not yet and I haven't allowed it to happen. But now the hour is upon us. As we've looked at, we're only five days away from the cross. And so Jesus is revealing this to his disciples that the time for me to be glorified is now. It's coming very soon. And I think it's interesting that it's connected with these Greeks and their desire to meet Jesus because you know what? Jesus didn't just come to die for the Jews. You know, many Jewish people believe that and thought, well, he's only our Savior. He's only our Messiah. But Jesus came to die for the sins of all the world, including these Greeks and any other Gentiles in the world. And I think it's an interesting reality that right now, as Jesus hears, these Greeks are seeking me. He wants them to realize, well, my time here on this earth is just about up. My hour to be glorified is now coming very quickly. And he reveals this to his disciples. And then he's going to share three very important truths. Truths that he wants his disciples, he wants us to understand. First, the believer's model. Second, the believer's mandate. And third, the believer's motivation. So first we see in verse 24, the believer's model. Notice what Jesus says. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus, the master communicator and teacher who always used illustrations many times to help his disciples and the the crowds understand a very important spiritual truth, does it here. He wants his disciples to understand what's coming. We know what's coming. We know the story. We know he's about to die. They weren't clued into that. But he also uses this illustration not only to to help them understand that he's going to die, but really why? What's the purpose? What is his death 
going to do. And so he uses this illustration to try to help them see the importance of his sacrifice that is soon going to happen. And the illustration that he uses is of a grain of wheat. In order for a grain of wheat to produce much grain, Jesus says it has to fall into the ground and die. And there alone in the ground, if it dies, it produces much grain. You know, this is an interesting thing. If you, if you take a, a little grain of wheat and you bury it in the ground, it literally does die in the sense that what that wheat or that grain was is now kind of destroyed because something alive grows out of it. You know, but it has to die in order for something else to be brought to life. And it gives life not only to this little, uh, starts, but it, that thing grows into this large wheat. Um, and, and it produces much grain from it. And so Jesus is using this illustration to help the disciples and us understand one of the reasons why he must die. Just like the grain of wheat must die in order to produce life in something else and to produce much more grain, Jesus has got to die in order to produce eternal life and salvation for the world who will believe in him, in order to produce much fruit in the sense of how many lives will be impacted for all eternity because of his willing sacrifice and death. Now, Jesus is not just sharing this to prepare his disciples for his death. That's part of it. You know, we're going to see in these next chapters, there's a lot of things that Jesus does to prepare his disciples for his death, for his resurrection. But this is also a model. Jesus is the great example for all of us. And he's wanting to say, hey, I am establishing a model, an example for you guys that I want you to follow. I'm going to be doing something that I want you, when you look at your own life, that you'd be willing to sacrifice your life for others, just like I'm willing to sacrifice my life for this world. So the first important truth that Jesus shares with his disciples and with us is the believer's model, which is Jesus' sacrificial life. I mean, you look at Jesus, he's the example in every area for us, but one of the most significant areas of his life that's such a powerful example is his willingness to live for the Father, his willingness to say, not my will, but your be done, his willingness to say, I will sacrifice my life for the sake of others. And this is the model, the example that he gives to us and says, I want you to follow me in this. I want you to to be those who follow this example in your life. Well, the second important truth that Jesus shares is in verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, here Jesus is wanting us to apply the example of his sacrificial life. All right, guys, I'm doing this. I'm that grain of wheat that needs to die in order to produce much uh, grain and and to be a a life-giving source to others. But now I want to challenge you to put this into practice in your life. And he shares really two radical truths that go completely against the thinking of the world today. And these two radical truths are this. First, he who loves his life will lose it. And second, he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, our world teaches a completely opposite message to the one that Jesus is declaring here. Our world teaches that you have to love your life in order to gain it, in order to keep it. But Jesus says, no, no, the opposite is true. You have to hate it. If you love it, you lose it. No, no, no. The world says, if you love it, you gain it. If you love it, you keep it. Jesus says, no, you love it, you're going to lose it. You must hate your life in this world in order to keep it for eternal life. What a challenge here. We shouldn't love our life in this world. And, you know, well, what does that mean? And I want to just throw out two things that go with that understanding of not loving your life in this world. And the first one would connect with that statement that Jesus makes of in this world. Loving your life in this world means living with this life only in view. I think that's what Jesus, when he emphasizes in this world, he's saying, hey, if you're only living with this world, the life that you live in this world in view, then you're loving your life. You're living for the wrong things and you're pursuing the wrong things. If this life 
And this all that this world has to offer is all you're spending your life on, seeking to acquire those things, seeking to gain those things. Jesus says, you're missing it. You know, many people in this life, that's their whole goal. I just want to accumulate as much money, as much stuff, as much as this world has to offer as I can. You know, they have that motto, he who dies with the most toys wins. And Jesus says, no. He who dies with the most toys loses. He who lives for the things of this world loses. The the message of the world that says, oh, you're going to win if you die with all that. They don't understand what happens after you die. And Jesus said, no, that doesn't give you victory. It gives you defeat. It doesn't cause you to win. It causes you to lose. We shouldn't be living with this life only in view. We should be living with eternity in view. Knowing that this life is, as Paul says, but a vapor. It's quick and it's ending very fast in comparison to all eternity, which is where our true home lies. You know, we're just pilgrims passing through here. We should be living for where we actually are meant to be. And it's not here. It's ultimately in heaven with God. And we should be living with that. Our motto should be different than the world's. He who dies living the most for Jesus is the one who truly is going to win. Who's going to have rewards that last beyond this life for all eternity. So first, loving your life in this world means living with this life only in view. And another thing that I think would describe loving your life in this world means living for the same things people in this world live for. If you want to ask yourself, am I loving this life? Am I ultimately doing that? Am I guilty of it? Well, look around and see what is this world living for? And if you're living for the same things, well, guess what? You're guilty of it. You're doing this. And so what does that mean? Well, I think John in 1 John gives a great description for us of what we shouldn't love and what we shouldn't live for. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So if you're doing that test to try to examine, you know, where am I at? You know, am I living for the right thing? Am I loving the right thing? Well, John tells us, you love the things of the world. Guess what? You're loving the wrong thing. The love of the Father is not in you if that's the things that you're loving. If you're living for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, which encompasses a lot, well, guess what? Those are the things that you shouldn't be living for. So the second important truth that Jesus shares with us is the believer's mandate. To follow Jesus, you must hate, not love your life in this world. That's the command. Jesus is saying, here, you, you want to follow me? Well, here's something I'm going to tell you. It might be hard for you. You know, in other portions of scripture, he says, take up your cross daily, follow me. You know, the mandate that Jesus gives is one that, you know, is opposed to this world, but also one that many people just don't like because it's difficult. Well, I got to die to myself. You know, I got to hate my life and ultimately live for Jesus. Yes, that is the mandate that Jesus gives for his followers. And one of the biggest things that keeps us from following Jesus' example of a sacrificial life is our love for this world, our love for comfort, our love for all this world brings. And it's hard to sacrifice when you're in love with the things that ultimately you're not willing to sacrifice. The third important truth that Jesus shares with us is in verse 26, the last verse we'll look at this morning. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Here Jesus is sharing with us two things that should motivate us to follow the model of his sacrificial life and to follow the mandate to hate not to hate your life as opposed to loving it in this world. And the first motivation, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, Let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Jesus said, hey, hey, for those who follow me, guess what? They're going to be with me. 
Now, the interesting thing is many times in scripture, we see, you know, Jesus telling us that he will be with us. You know, something that we love to hear, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That Jesus saying, I will be with you. And that's a wonderful truth. One that we should hold on to, that while we're here in this life, Jesus says, I'll be walking with you. I'll always be with you. I'll never leave you. But here he says something that's also just as important, that you will be with me. And what Jesus is revealing here is, hey, guess what? I'm in heaven. And if those who follow me, they're going to come and be with me where I am. The ultimate motivation and reward is, hey, you follow me, you are going to be with me. You are going to get to come and spend eternity with me in the greatest place that there ever was and ever will be. And this should be a huge motivation. Why should I sacrifice in this life? Because this life's not our home. Because what we gain in living for Jesus is something that blesses us. There's rewards for all eternity, and that's where we're going to be. We're going to be with him there. And that should be a motivation for the fact that Jesus promises this of me. And so I should live for him now, knowing this life is so short. And what I do in this life has an impact for all of eternity. And what a motivation to live for Jesus the way we should. The reward of being with Jesus in heaven is worth whatever we must sacrifice here on this earth. And we need to understand that. You know, sometimes, oh, I don't know if I should sacrifice this. I mean, when you compare it and you, and you listen to Paul and he's like, man, whatever I go through, when I put the, the, the scale out there and I balance it, it's nothing in, conspa- in comparison to the weight of glory that I'm going to receive. You know, what I'm receiving in heaven is nothing in comparison to what I have to suffer through in this life. And you look at Paul's life and he suffered through a lot, but he understood it's worth it. And we have to come to that realization, it's worth it. Because what I gain in heaven, what I gain in following Jesus is far more than I ever will sacrifice or give up here in this life on this earth. Jim Elliott, a missionary who was killed for his faith, shares a similar sentiment. He says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jamelli understood, you know what? It's not foolish to be willing to sacrifice your life for something you'll never lose, for something that comes in eternity, for something that you'll be blessed with forever. And he didn't just proclaim this, he did it. He was a no fool and he was willing to give his life and he literally did die sharing the gospel to people who needed to hear it as a missionary. But he recognized, you know what? Hey, you're no fool who gives what you cannot keep anyway, your own life to gain what you cannot lose, eternal life with God in heaven. So the first thing that should motivate us to follow Jesus's model of sacrificial life, the thing that should help us put into practice the mandate to hate, not love your life in this world is the fact that Jesus will be with us or we will be with Jesus forever in heaven. The second thing that should motivate us is what Jesus says next. If anyone serves me, him, my father will honor. This is such a wonderful truth. Jesus saying, you know what? You serve me in this life. You are going to receive honor from God the father. And I would hope as believers, that is one of the greatest desires that we have. We want honor from God. And Jesus says, well, here, serve me, live for me in this life now, and my Father will give you honor. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, in this world, we're willing to do so many different things to try to acquire honor from people in this life, honor from this culture, honor from this world. But an honor that is far superior to any of that is the honor of God. And Jesus is saying, you know what? My system works differently. The world says you got to live for that and do this and they'll give you honor. But you know what? You sacrifice those things and you live for me and you're going to get the greatest honor there is. You're going to get the honor that comes from the heavenly father. And he's going to grant that to you because you are living for me. And you see that in the example of Jesus's own life. He lived for the Father in several occasions. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. God gave honor to Jesus over and over again because Jesus was willing to sacrifice in order to do the will of the Father. And if we are willing to do the same, that same honor is given to us as well. So the third important truth that Jesus shares with us is the believer's motivation. 
If we serve Jesus and follow him, we'll be with him forever in heaven and the Father will honor us. You know, I feel like this challenge with that Jesus gives, it's just a good encouragement for us in the midst of the craziness of what's going on right now. With the coronavirus, with all the selfishness that we're seeing in our culture right now and things going on, you know, we really need to stay focused on the model that all of us should follow, and that is Jesus' sacrificial life. As we look around and we think of, you know, what can I get, get, get? No, no. How can I sacrifice myself for others? How can I lay down my life for others? What am I willing to give right now to reach other people and to bless other people and to be a light for Jesus in a world that especially right now needs to see it? You know, during this time, let's apply Jesus's mandate to follow him and hate, not love our life in this world and to not lose sight of what's important. Yeah, we have a virus and people are dying and the economy's hurting and things are happening. But you know what? In the bigger picture, those things are insignificant to the real realities of people who don't know Christ, people who are going to hell. And we are the church and we are the ones who can reach those people, whether there's a virus or not. We're the ones who have this mandate, but ultimately we're not going to accomplish it unless we're willing to follow what Jesus says of, hey, you got to love me, not this world. you got to live for me, not this world. And right now is a great time for us to be putting this into practice and demonstrating to this world that, you know what, we live for something different. And we're here for you, even in the midst of all these people who are not, who are just looking out for themselves. We're here to reach you, to be there for you, to help you as much as we can. But you also be encouraged. Be motivated by the reality that, you know what? Once you die, you know, you have that hope. You're going to go be with the Lord in heaven and there are rewards for all eternity for what you sacrificed in this life, for what you gave up for the Lord in this life. He's going to bless you. And even in this life, there are blessings. And even in this life, there is the honor from the Father who is pleased with you, who is pleased with me each and every time we sacrifice for him, we lay down our life and say, you know what, I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to do his will as opposed to trying to do my own. Whatever you sacrifice in this life for following Jesus is worth it. And this is a time where I think so many people need to see that, need to be encouraged by that. And even though we can't gather corporately, it doesn't mean that the church doesn't exist. It just means we can't get in a building together. We're the church individually, and we can still pray for people. We can still reach people. We can still share the gospel with people. We can still bless our families. You know, we can still do what we're called to do and sacrifice what we're called to sacrifice, whether we can gather together in a building or not. And so let's make sure we're doing what God calls us to do, even in the midst of a lot of the different things where, you know, social distancing and things that are happening right now, that we seek to do what God's leading us to do in the wisest way possible. Let's pray.